and welcome to Season 2 of the StoryFest podcast. StoryFest is a biennial celebration of the art of storytelling held here on Murramurang Country in the Milton Mollymook, Ulladulla region on the beautiful New South Wales South Coast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded in June at StoryFest 2021. You can learn more about StoryFest at our website, storyfest.org.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. Every month we feature some terrific book recommendations, author interviews and fabulous book giveaways. As a bonus, subscribers get first dibs on special offers and early bird access to tickets for all of our events. We'd love to see you at future festivals. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Ulladulla High School Didgeridoo Group for providing the wonderful musical intro to this podcast. Now grab a cuppa or put on your walking shoes and enjoy this episode from StoryFest 2021. <laughs> How lovely to see you here. Thank you for being here on this wild, wild afternoon. It's like Wuthering Heights out there. Um, before we get started, my name's Caroline Baum, and I'm thrilled to be here in conversation with one of my favourite writers, whoops, Emily Maguire, to talk about her wonderful new novel, Love Objects. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we are here today on the Maramarang country of the Yuin Nation, and I would like to pay my respects to any elders uh, who are here today, and also pay my respects to past members of the UN nation. Um, so, on this wild, wintry day, um, Emily Maguire, as I'm sure many of you know, has written six novels, um, including the Stella Prize-nominated An Isolated Incident, which was published in 2016. And she's also the author of nonfiction about sex, feminism, and culture. Now, I had a very tantalizing glimpse of uh, what Love Objects was going to be about because I bumped into Emily at a lecture at the State Library a couple of years before the book was published. We both decided to go, sorry, I'm popping a lot. Uh, we both decided to go to a lecture about the psychology of hoarding. And I saw Emily there and I said, what are you doing here? And she said, I'm researching my next book. So then I was kind of full of anticipation because I knew that she would have a fascinating sort of um, take on hoarding. Um, uh, she'd gone along with a purpose. I had gone along just out of curiosity. Um, so this novel really has its finger on the pulse of the way that we relate to our possessions and to our material world. Um, but it also examines um, themes of emotional resonance to do with class, betrayal, and privacy, and what it means to belong to a family that has baggage. Most families have baggage. Well, we're going to explore what that means. You know, what do we owe each other in a family emotionally? Um, so, Emily. Welcome, first Thank of all. Thank you. Uh, the book's been out in the world now for a few months, and because it's about something that people are so interested in, which is how we relate to material possessions, whether we collect them, whether we get rid of them, whether we are more on the sort of spectrum of hoarding, which is you know, one of the themes of the book, I was just wondering whether you found that um, since the book's been out, people have been coming up to you and telling you their stories about how they relate to their possessions. Yeah. Um, hi, everyone. It's really nice to be here. Um, so when I was working on the book and researching it, as soon as people found out sort of even vaguely what I was working on, they would start telling me their stories um, of someone in their family who they thought was a hoarder or they knew was a hoarder or their own experience with what they thought might be borderline hoarding. Or they would rush to tell me how absolutely the opposite of that they were, that they're a minimalist, they chuck out everything. And it was almost the same conversation each time because it's really about um, a total fixation on the objects in your space and how they affect you psychologically. And some people, you know, just really have this thing where they just feel much, much better with a lot of stuff around them. And some people that drives them absolutely up the wall and they can't stand it. Since the book's been out and people have read it, and it is absolutely, there's a character who has hoarding behaviour, but um, because I'm writing from her perspective, I hope there is this sort of real deep um, 
immersion into her and her, her personal specific connection with her things rather than some general idea of what, what a hoarder is like. Um, and that's been so fascinating. The conversations have changed a bit. I do still have a lot of people who want to talk about the hoarder they know or their own experiences, but also people who will just say, oh, this, I didn't think I would relate to her at all, but this particular thing with this object or this particular feeling she had about that thing, I really get that. And that's been so good because, um, you know, we can, we can talk about this some more, but I, I did do a really, really deep dive into research for this book and one of the things I came out of it with was this idea that there was nothing I heard from people who hoard that I haven't experienced myself as someone who doesn't and that most people I talk to haven't. It's just that it's applied to a much broader range of things. But the, there's nothing alien or strange about that feeling of, of being really emotionally connected to objects. Mm. Okay, so I, I want to talk to you about the research that you did because it sort of um, falls into two categories and, um, and obviously we're going to talk about Nick, the character, because she's such a wonderful character and you write about her so lovingly and so non-judgmentally, but I want to ask you then, on the spectrum from the minimalist that you've just mentioned to the hoarder at the other end, where do you fall? Oh, um, <laughs> that's a really hard question actually. I guess I'm more towards the minimalist but I'm absolutely not a minimalist, which is why it's a hard <laughs> question to answer. So, I mean, I've always lived in quite small spaces as an adult, so that's part of it, that things become cluttered very quickly when you just don't have much room. Um, and so just out of practicality, I tend to not uh, have accumulated much stuff. Like pretty much everyone I know in this industry or this line of work, I hoard books. Mm. And I use that the word hoard count. properly that because it's, count. well, it's, they're, they're physical objects that actually don't really have any um, value in terms of resale value in the world. They're sort of valueless in that sense. To, to go out and sell all my books at an op shop is not going to make me rich. They're not worth hanging on to like, like uh, physical works of art. Um, they have great emotional mm. value to me. I could replace them easily. I could go to the library. I could download an ebook if they weren't there, but I feel better just having them there. That is very hoarding thinking. But I have that with books. That takes up most of the physical space in my home. Mm. Um, I don't feel that way about pretty much anything else. I'm, I'm pretty easy come, easy go um, in terms of objects. I, like everyone, too, almost everyone, I do have some sentimental things, you know, paintings that nieces and nephews have made for me, things like that. But, but there's, there's not a lot in my house that I would um, grieve over if it were to be lost. It's poignant in a way talking about this here, I realise, because you know, we're in a community where people have had to make decisions about the things that you grab on the way out in a fire. And inevitably people say photographs because for many people they're not replaceable if they haven't scanned them or downloaded them. Mm. So, you know, th there are different levels of resonance in different communities and in different situations. And many of you I know have been through something relating to this. And recently. that is, just since you bring that up, that is something I was really thinking about working on at the very late draft of the book when that, when that was happening. And I think that too is that, that many people here would understand that it's not just the economic value of the things in your home, that even when you, when you lose 20, 25 more years worth of stuff, even if you didn't think you were that attached to any particular item, um, even if someone were to give you the money to replace everything as new, there's so much that's lost yeah. because it's your history in those objects and it's stories of your family. And that's for someone like Nick um, in this book, that that's just, an intrinsic understanding in her that, that the, the things hold value just in and of themselves because they have been there at various events throughout time and that's something that people outside of her can't see they see junk yeah we'll come back to that in a moment let's just talk about the two different kinds of research that you did to sort of um, flesh out Nick's um, relationship to objects and her general view of the world and her, her behavior so some of the research you did was um, in a way more scientific because you were a fellow at the um, Charles Perkins Centre at Sydney University and you were embedded in an institution which was doing research on lifestyle diseases like let's say smoking but there was other research that you did where you actually did go and talk to hoarders so can you talk about each of those? 
Yeah, so I should say initially my interest came because there have been and, and are people in my life who have hoarding behaviour. So that interest came from a really personal connection and seeing the way that popular culture or media tends to portray people with hoarding behaviour. It was really... Uh, tends to be very sensationalist um, and uh, depends a lot on kind of revulsion and disgust and that kind of thing. And, and that just didn't sit well with me for a long time. I'd been thinking about writing something with a character with hoarding behaviour. Um, but I, I wanted to be able to do it justice and this incredible opportunity came up, um, a writer-in-residence fellowship at the Charles Perkins Centre at Sydney University. Uh, which is just like a life-changing type opportunity for a writer. It's a year being spent working in this uh, hub of medical research and they let a creative writer in, just, I don't know, out of a sense of <laughs> inviting chaos or something. Um, no, there's, there's really good reasons for it. But um, what I was able to do was spend time asking a lot of questions of, of people. So, so there's all different researchers there from across different fields. Um, you know, biologists and neurobiologists and the psychologists and physicists, all kinds of uh, different science thinkers and medical researchers. And a lot of the research around there, it wasn't actually about hoarding behaviour, but it was about, um, for me, what I was trying to get at from all these different people working on all different things was this idea really of how do you or can you help someone who doesn't want help? Mm -hmm. And so people who work on obesity-related illness, drinking-related illness, smoking-related illnesses, this is at the heart of so much stuff when, when they're trying to turn what they know into um, public health information or clinicians working on the front line. We know all this stuff about what these behaviours, what effect they have, and people still choose, including me, <laughs> often to do stuff that we know is bad for us. And how much can anyone whether it is public health or community services or family members or friends, actually make someone not do things that are, you know, quote unquote bad for them. So I went really deep diving into that, but also things around, um, you know, different uh, operant behaviour and all this kind of stuff. Through some of those connections that I made um, with two major hospitals that are connected with the Charles Perkins Centre and researchers, I was also able to then get to know some frontline um, health professionals who work with people like Nick. Um, it's no spoiler that in the first chapter of the book, Nick has a fall. She almost gets crushed to death by her stuff. Um, and, and what will often happen in a real life situation uh, if an ambulance picks up someone from a home like hers, they will then you know, make a report that this home isn't safe for this person to go back to, which is what happens to Nick in the book. And I did get to speak to and spend time with a lot of the social workers who are then called in to try and deal with this situation. And then gradually building up again through time and building trust, I was able to um, meet and spend time with some people who are in, um, in treatment for what's now called hoarding disorder. It's actually such a gift to be let into, into their um, process and into their thoughts. Uh, hoarding disorder is something that very few people self-identify as having. So there's actually not that many people in treatment. Um, and the ones that are, they, they do tend to have a lot of insight and a, and a lot to share about what they're going through because they've really been through a process to even get to the point where it's something that they're talking about. So is there a kind of, do we have a stereotype in our minds, do you think about the typical hoarder? Because, um, you know, I'm just wondering, is there, are there particular kinds of behaviour? Is it gender? Is it something where there is usually an inciting trauma that causes the behaviour to be triggered? Mm. So there are definitely stereotypes that are wrong, <laughs> as many stereotypes are. I think the stereotypical hoarder is an older woman. Um, and that just doesn't bear out in anything we know. Um, it's, it's not an aged behaviour, it's not a gendered behaviour. Um, often it is a behaviour that only becomes uh, serious, which I can define that in a moment, when someone is living on their own, which is why sometimes it seems to present or become more obvious with older people, because it might be the first time that they're actually living on their own because a spouse has, has died or you know children have moved out of the home, so it can be when it presents more. Um, but the behaviour can start very young. The, the thing about um, what we now call hoarding disorder is that that is a really new thing. Uh, the behaviour is not new, 
but calling it hoarding disorder is new. It's only been since 2013 that that's been considered its own condition in the DSM, which is the psychiatric Bible for diagnosing stuff. Um, before that, the behaviour was usually considered to be a symptom of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And it also, as, as many people unfortunately would know, it can present as a symptom of dementia or other um, kind of mental conditions. And it's a, it's a behaviour that comes from these other conditions. For someone to be diagnosed with hoarding disorder, one of the criteria is that it's not being caused by something else. So it's not being caused, it's not a symptom of dementia, it's not a symptom of any, any other disease or condition. It's sort of something that is presenting as its own um, mental disorder or illness. Um, and the, the other big things that, that make someone uh, meet those criteria for a diagnosis is that their clutter has built up to a point where their living spaces are unable to be used for what they're intended for. So you can't get to your bed to go to sleep, you can't use your kitchen to cook. Um, I have some issues around that as a criteria just because uh, people who have a lot more space and a bigger house can actually have behaviour that's much more extreme for a much longer amount of time before it actually meets that standard. Um, but then the other side, which is completely, as far as I know, universal, is um, for people with hoarding disorder have extreme um, distress not just at having this, any of the clutter moved, but even the thought of mm. having the clutter moved. So that's a, that's a big thing that, that is different. Like, as I said, a lot of people would say, oh, you're writing about me when I said I'm writing about hoarding. Um, and they, people don't joke about it in that way if this is really a problem for right. them. It's actually a very distressing, serious thing. People who just maybe have, you know, do a bit over shop and just have too much stuff in their house that they know they should do a clear out, often they would be delighted if someone said, let's have a working bee, or you've got a personal organiser for a month to come in and sort your house out, they would love it. Might feel a bit embarrassed at someone poking around, but they'd feel pretty good about it. Someone who would be diagnosable with hoarding disorder would, would find that absolutely, you know, devastating and distressing to have someone coming in and cleaning up. So, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the word clutter there, and obviously we're all familiar with the kind of mania around decluttering as the kind of, you know, Marie Kondo um, philosophy of if it doesn't spark joy, you have to get rid of whatever it is. You must have thought about this. What is that about, that, that um, aspiration that so many of us have to live tidily, to have perfectly neat cupboards full of perfectly folded sheets and towels? What, uh, that to me seems almost pathological as well. Well, it, it, it can be, and it is that same thing in that, that, that objects or having stuff around us, we, most people seem to realise that it, it does have an effect on you one way or the other, whether that's a comforting effect or an irritating effect. I mean, my, my, one of my sisters, my older sister, she was agitated reading the book at times and would text me saying, I can't stand it, because <laughs> she's a very clean, tidy. Like, she'll come into my house and start tidying, and it's not even very messy. <laughs> And she'll say, um, I love her, I absolutely love her, but she'll just get so smug and she'll go, out of order, inner calm. <laughs> Which, my inner calm is gone, there's no calm. <laughs> we're, we're very close in age, we shared a room for all our childhood, so there's a lot, there's, there's some stuff going on there with, <laughs> with her being in my space. <laughs> but so she is one of these people and she, but, but for her it's true is what it comes down to. It's right. absolutely true. If she has clutter and mess around her, she feels agitated. She can't concentrate. She can't relax. Um, her, her mental energy is dissipated in some way. Um, and I think there's a, there's a promise as well in the idea of that extreme tidying or the condo stuff and all of that. There is a promise that if, if you're feeling like your life is a bit out of control in mm -hmm. some way or just not what it should be, that if you can just get it looking good and organised, then the other stuff will follow. It will be um, out of order, in a calm. You'll, you'll be able to tackle and do other things. And, and I think, you know, sure, that's true to some extent. Like, you, you know, I'm sure most people have had the experience where things are too, you know, if your kitchen's a total mess and you're much less likely to cook yourself a good healthy meal, for example, than if it's easy to do everything. But there's some point at which it does come a bit pathological and it is the same kind of thing that you'll hear with people who might hoard or have what is perceived as too much stuff is that there is a real uh, burden being put on the specifics of the space around you and what's in it to actually carry the load for other psychological or emotional stuff that's going on. Mm. 
and and the, the having that stuff all in order or not is is what people can tell themselves, if only this, then I would be okay and I'd have it all sorted. You mentioned cooking yourself a nice meal there, and I, I must say there is something I'm very grateful for you for in this book, which is that in this description of Nick and her hoarding, you do not do what many of us have read Sarah Krasnerstein's The Trauma Cleaner, an extraordinary, extraordinary account of going into these sorts of homes and cleaning them out precisely because of social services and health mm. and safety issues. And the squalor that she describes is, you know, like a complete nightmare of um, maggots and, and worse. Mm. And you did not do that with Nick. So can you tell us a little bit about the inside of Nick's home and also Nick's life? Because she's actually a very content, very happy person. Yeah. And, and you didn't give her this squalor. No, so I, I guess I'll just quickly say on that first that in all my research into this, squalor hoarding is a really specific subset and actually most people who would be considered to have hoarding disorder, um, they, they don't necessarily okay. fit into that category. So again, that's what I'm, when I'm talking about stereotypes and if anyone's seen the um, reality TV show Hoarders and that kind of thing, they tend to really go for that subset of people because it makes for that kind of you know, cringy TV where they can zoom in on something really disgusting and, and do that full humiliation thing to make the audience react, however. That, that is actually a specific subset and, and is often treated quite differently, as is animal hoarding, which is something else which I don't deal with with this character. Um, so Nick is uh, not a squalor hoarder or an animal hoarder. She would not describe herself as a hoarder at all. Mm. That word would not be in her conception of herself. And in fact, if you asked her about herself, she probably wouldn't even mention her stuff. It, it is important to her, but it's, it's not part of her identity that she has all this stuff. So she would say she's in her 40s, she's single, mostly pretty happily. Um, hasn't had kids, but she's very, very close to one of her nieces in particular, Lena. She is a lifelong proud checkout chick, really loves her job and feels very competent and good at it. Um, and she has her own little house, which is a stroke of luck that she inherited a little house um, in the inner city Sydney, which, you know, someone who works as a retail worker would never, ever, ever buy a house <laughs> in Sydney <laughs> these days. So, so that is a bit of luck that she does have her own um, space. And yeah, she, she has a pretty happy, contented life, um, right up to, you know, when her stuff almost kills her and other stuff has to come into it. Yes, yeah, so she has a fall and, and you've explained what happens next. But so given what you've just told us about the fact that she has a job, she has a home, she, she has a level of satisfaction with her mm. life, which is not common in a lot of contemporary novels. A lot of contemporary novels rely on the central character being very dissatisfied with some aspect mm. of their life. So because of that, I'm really interested to know what do those possessions add to her life if they're not part of um, the particular subsets of hoarding that you're talking about before and that she wouldn't see herself as a hoarder when she's looking at the objects that she can see around her at home, what's happening? When Nick looks at an object in her home there is always at least one story, and sometimes many, attached to it. Every object contains a story or many stories, and therefore, you know, her, her life is not perfect, and that's something that, that comes out throughout the mm. novel. Um, I, I will just backtrack a little bit before we were talking about more generally about if there's a typical hoarder, and you, you mentioned trauma. There, there are some... The, the research is quite new into hoarding disorder as its own thing because it is quite new. One of the um, ideas that a lot of people have had around hoarding behaviour for a long time is that it is triggered by trauma. And certainly there is some research into that and some anecdotal evidence, but it's, it's, not, a, it's not a sure thing that someone suffers a trauma and then this happens. Certainly some of the people I met had had some really profoundly sad and traumatic things happen to them. But that's probably true of any group of people that you get together. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that um, came out to me in people that I spoke to a lot was this, I w this is my word, not theirs, but a self-comforting nature of having the objects around them. So people would use words like feeling cocooned, feeling comforted, feeling sure of things. Things don't leave, things don't go away. The story about them doesn't change. It doesn't get contradicted. Um, so I think this idea of self-comforting is something that is certainly there for Nick. 
there are, there are things from her past that are sad. Not, again, not no major, you know, huge traumas in the way some people would think about it. But there's been loss and there's been mm-hmm. grief mm. and there's been loneliness. And her things are comforting. And, you know, she's got a, she's got a shirt that she wore the night she met this bloke who was for a while the one. And it didn't work out long term. But it was the first time she'd ever felt that way. It was that first rush and excitement of lust and love and feeling chosen by someone. And, you know, they'd pashed up against a brick wall and the back of her shirt had got all, um, you know, bitsy from it. For cheap fabric, it's all uh, gravel rash on the fabric. <laughs> And so she still has that 20-something years later, and it's where she can see it. And when she looks at that or reaches out and touches it, she's that 20-year-old again for a moment. And, and that is true of all of her objects, that, that they, even the ones that aren't um, imbued with specific memories from her life, she, she will make up stories around them. And this is something that a lot of people I spoke to did, that... There's something, there's something that came across as so... I mean, I don't want to over-romanticise hoarding behaviour because there are real dangers and, and um, actually real traumas caused by it, particularly for, for children who have to grow up with it and all of that. So I really you know, don't want to go too far in that way. But there are some things that are so beautiful and precious um, in the way of thinking about objects as um, part of the continuity of a human experience, mm. whether that's in someone who's put care into making something or someone else has valued it, that just chucking it out seems to be disregarding that person's human experience. And that's something I think maybe Nick is someone who, despite her feeling pretty much mostly okay, she knows that she is someone who maybe would be seen, or not seen, who is a bit invisible now that she's a middle-aged woman without kids, without a partner, with a job that's not seen as particularly prestigious. She is a bit like a, a background person in the life of a lot of others and could be easily discarded in that sense. And she would never articulate it this way, but to me and in some of the people I met, there is a sense that their impulse to not let anything be discarded is kind of a personalising of this thing of like everyone is precious and the care everyone has taken in objects and in what they're doing is precious and that there's something very cold and cruel about just taking something that someone has made with such care and tossing it in a bin. Mm. Do you want to read us a little bit that might illustrate that? Because that's such a, a beautiful thought and it kind of resonates as well with the way we're now thinking more about not throwing everything away and about not um, you know consuming in such a mindless fashion so actually the book resonates mm. with that I think so um, so this is uh, quite close to the beginning and Nick has had this fall that I mentioned before and stuffed down on top of her and she can't get up um, so she's just sort of looking around at some of her stuff in her bedroom from her viewpoint of the floor There are other things to remember with while she waits. A handbag squished between the end of the bed and the washing baskets filling the space from bed to cupboard. When had it fallen and why hadn't she noticed? Burgundy leather, real leather, soft all over and softer still in the creases. Lots of creases because it had lived a long life before Nick rescued it from a garage sale three blocks away. It had been shoved in a cardboard box along with a man-striped business shirt with all the buttons missing a pale pink satin negligee with lace trim, and a matching pair of old-fashioned fluffy mules, a white cotton apron printed with large bright oranges, and a child's painting smock, yellow and speckled with all the other colours. Nick had been planning to take only the handbag, since its opened zipper, a silent screaming mouth, had called to her. But halfway across the lawn towards the payment table, she felt the terrible pull in her guts that meant she was doing something wrong. She returned to the box, placed the handbag back among its friends, carried the whole thing over to the table. How old are your kids? The man said as she handed over the $10. "Mm, No kids, she answered, confused. Niece and nephew, but they're... Ah, you're vying for best auntie award, hey? (laughs) She smiled, though she didn't know why. At home, examining each item more carefully, she understood... The box was for children to play dress-ups. She flushed with heat. Imagine if she'd told him her niece and nephew were teenagers and lived in another state. He'd have known her for what she was, childless old dope buying other people's junk. She'd sat for a bit then, stroking the burgundy leather. It soothed her, and it made her sorry, 
Not junk, not at all. Magic. She could see the sweet baby calf in the green field, huge eyes blinking up at its mama as it feeds, grows tall and wide and strong, the farmer protecting its skin from insects and barbed wire and brands. And at the end of its life, the cherished, perfect skin is turned over to artists to create their tribute, a whole team of people working together for weeks or months, tanning and treating and dyeing and stretching, brushing and buffing and stitching with such tenderness. How much time passed between the birth of that calf and this moment? How much labour and care and ingenuity and skill? When she stroked it, she felt the traces of all those other hands, felt the wonder of that. Mm. <laughs> um, that raises many questions, some of which We'll, we'll try and get through, but um, I guess one of the things that's sort of implicit in, in the way you write about Nick and her possessions is that w there is judgment from outside on the value of the things that she cherishes and that it's one thing if you collect garden gnomes and it's another if you collect Ming vases. So can you just talk about how you have managed to thread the idea of class uh, through this novel so beautifully, so skillfully, in that way? Um, yeah, class is a, is a big thing in this book. Um, I'm glad you think it's done skillfully. It didn't feel like it doing it. <laughs> um, so, so Nick is someone who sees value in objects no matter what. She doesn't need them to be valuable in other people's eyes. Um, certainly, I think if that handbag she's thinking about in that way um, had a particular branding on it um, and, and was from a particular uh, designer or retailer, a lot more people would say, well, of course, you would hang on to that. It's such a <laughs> find you've had at that garage sale. But, but the value she's seeing in it doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, one of, one of the things that, that really got me doing the research into this is this point of intervention when people's lives are um, forced to change by outsider intervention. And that happens much faster and at a much more aggressive level for people who are not wealthy, mm -hmm. um, for people who are seen to be collecting or hoarding things that other people can't agree on the value of, for people who don't own their own homes, which is one reason why I do have Nick having inherited a home, um, because if she was a renter or in housing commission, she would have been forced into changing behaviour much, much earlier. So all of that comes into it. Um, but I guess the other way that I, I really think about this through the book or, or weave it through is, is with the character of niece and nephew. Um, so we haven't really talked about them much, but um, Nick's niece, Lena, is sort of her closest person, and she's the one who finds her. Um, and she's a first in her family at university. She has a lot of class anxiety, although again, she would not use that phrase. She just feels like she's a bit not as good as anyone else um, at uni. And then her brother, Will, who's a little bit older and he sort of comes into the picture a bit later to help. Um, but he is someone who does not have any money. <laughs> And not having any money becomes his full-time job in a sense. Particularly, you know, he, he gets a simple toothache and that becomes the most urgent problem that he can't do anything about for the sake of a little bit of money. Mm. Um, and they're both there in this place with all of this stuff that means so, so much to one person. And yet, as, as Lena considers and, and tries to do at one stage, she could sell a lot of it and thinks it would keep him in, you know, 7-Eleven coffees for a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, I love the way you, you um, create this dynamic between Nick and Lena, because it's such a loving relationship, mm. and it's such a beautiful way of um, introducing the thought that you don't have to be a mother and a daughter to have that kind of degree of love and care and concern. Mm. And it goes back to that question that I mentioned in the introduction about, you know, what do we owe each other? Wow. Gail just swept through here. Um, Wild. And, and Lena very much wants to take responsibility for helping her aunt so that she can go back into her home 
um, from hospital and fulfill the conditions that are set by the social worker for making the home safe. Uh, so she has to kind of take a more adult responsibility and become almost mm. the parent for, for her aunt. Can, can you talk a little bit about... I mean, obviously, you are, you are an aunt. I know you're an aunt. Yeah. And so, obviously, this is written from a sort of heartfelt, personal point of view. But can you just talk a little bit about the dynamic between them? Yeah, so th this is probably the most um, personal element of the book for me, not in the specifics of the relationship, but um, that aunt-niece relationship, which I've been lucky enough to have on both sides of that. I have a couple of aunties who were incredibly important to me um, growing up, like not just love them, they're my family, but really important in, in shaping who I am and my sense of identity. And then I'm in a position now as someone without kids of my own who, who has hundreds of nieces and nephews, it often feels like. There's, um, I think we're at 19, um, <laughs> who I'm really, really close to. And, and they're, it's not something I could have chosen. Like it's all decisions of other people to have their babies, but uh, have become absolutely uh, central to my life and, and who I am. And I, I wanted to get that kind of relationship uh, in a book as a kind of love story. Um, between people who, you know, they, they are connected by family, they're mm. connected by blood, if you like, but, but not in that way of, uh, certainly in, the, in my kind of uh, upbringing, there, there's no assumed duty once you get past the immediate mm -hmm. nuclear family. You know, it's nice if people from the wider family are, are close and help out or whatever, but, but there's not that thing of if, it's, if you're a young adult and it's your mum or your dad, whether they fulfil this or not, there's an expectation that this is your responsibility. But Lena could very easily walk away from this situation and no one would really judge her for it. She's 20 years old, she's a uni student, it's her auntie. It's not really her job to deal with this. Mm. So I, I wanted to write a character in a relationship where, you know, and she's, she's got some stuff she's avoiding of her own, um, which, which is part of an incentive. But really, it's also that she, she loves this woman. She has always seen her as someone she looks up to. She sometimes thinks in difficult situations, what would Nick do? And it, it is devastating to her to, in her perception, to, to think that her auntie has fallen so low. Mm. Um, that's obviously not how Nick sees her situation, but Lena is so shocked by the state of her house and she, she is devastated. She feels like this is a, a, huge, a, a hugely awful, awful thing that has happened to this woman that she loves and looks up to. And, and she does see it, uh, if not me, then who? I'm, I'm her person, I get her. And she doesn't even want to tell her own mother, who's Nick's sister, really how bad it is because she knows that they, you know... They, they have some issues in their relationship and, and she doesn't want Nick to be judged, even though she's judging her herself. It is that thing with family. Sometimes you feel like, oh, I have to be the one to handle this because others don't understand. Um, and she, she feels that for her auntie in a really personal way. Well, and that's also amplified by the fact, you, you referred there to the fact that um, Lena's got her own issues. Boy, has she got her own issues. We're going to come to that in a minute. She's re sort of reverberating with kind of profound shame from mm. having been exploited through um, a sex video. Um, so I just want to hold that thought, though, for a moment, because I, I was thinking about um, the structure of the book, and I, mm. I was curious about whether when you're writing, whether you think sort of almost geometrically, because I, I noticed triangles in your book. So there's a triangle between mm. uh, Lena and Nick and Will. Mm. Um, and then there's another triangle in the book, which is between uh, Lena, the boyfriend, and her friend who's sort of um, rich and, and comfortable, but pretending that she's not, sort mm. of kind of slumming it. So Lena finds herself caught between two people who are not genuine and not authentic. The boyfriend who takes the video and then puts it out online, and the girl who's rich but kind of underplaying it. Do you think in terms of those shapes when you're writing? Oh, that's so interesting because no, I don't when I'm writing, but something I did do um, towards the final stages of this book when I was struggling a little bit with the structure between the three point of view characters, which is Will, Lena and Nick, I came across an image um, of a broken plate 
and it was broken into three pieces <laughs> and stuck back together. And I stuck that up on my whiteboard and I thought that's what this story is, that they're one unit, even though most people wouldn't see this as a family unit, as a niece, nephew and auntie, this is for this story, this is the unit. And before the book starts, really, they've been smashed apart and they're three separate pieces. And by the end of the book, they'll be bracked together and you'll be able to see those breaks, um, but, but they will be one piece again. And so I did really have this image literally on my, on my whiteboard in my office of the three bits of the plate stuck together. Um, I think more broadly that thing of, you know, Lena in particular getting stuck between sort of different sets of two people, the, the thematically and I guess psychologically one of the things I was really interested in this book was the way that people are unknowable to us in a sense, even when we're really close to them, but also that we're sort of unknowable to ourselves in terms of how we come across to other people. Lena, for example, is someone who thinks of herself as not as good as anyone around her. She thinks of herself as quite stupid. She's had to do like a bridging course to be able to get into uni um, rather than go straight through and she's quite embarrassed of that. And so she sort of carries herself with this kind of shame and defensiveness around this. If you were to ask either of those other family members, um, Nick or Will, she's the smartest person they've ever met. They can't believe how brilliant she is. They, Nick can't believe she's related to her, that, that someone's so high achieving and clever. And Lena cannot see herself that way. And at the same time, you know, she sees Nick as someone, like I said, what would Nick do in this situation? She sticks up for herself sometimes just because she gets Nick's words in her head. She takes chances because she knows that that's what Nick would do and sees her as a hero. And then meanwhile, she, she walks in unexpectedly into this, this mess and thinks, I don't even know who this woman is. How has she been living like this? What's wrong with her? And their relationship is close. It's not false. Mm. It's not fake. No one's lying exactly. But th there's these gaps between even people who are the closest. And, and you know, Will is the third piece of that. He has deliberately taken himself geographically far from his family because he feels that he is a burden on them and he feels that he gets in the way of their happiness and he can't quite figure out to be part of that. None of them think of him that way. They think he's fine, he's okay. He's the one who has a baby we left behind because he was so quiet under the table, we forgot about him. Um, and this perception of him as good old Will, calm Will, Will doing the right thing, and in himself, he's, he's in the way, he's, you know? And this, this kind of stuff I'm so interested in, and sometimes you need more than the two points of view for that. You need this sort of at least a third one coming in and seeing what, what makes up ourselves is always in relation to other people. One of the things that makes this book so powerful is the way you write about shame. So there is, um, there is uh, Lena's shame because she's been exposed to all her peers on campus through the dissemination of this video. And, and there is the feeling that, that we have, I think, for, for Nick in terms of the way she is being judged as having this mm. hoarding problem, even though she doesn't necessarily see it that way. She's made to feel bad, I guess, by the social worker. And I was very struck, Emily, when I was rereading the book for today uh, about the difference, the sort of dissonance between the shame that you write about of these private individuals and the absolute lack of shame that we are seeing in public life right now. The lack of accountability, the lack of responsibility, mm. the lack of any kind of skerrick of decency, desire to apologize for something, any notion of embarrassment. What is going on? Mate, <laughs> where do we start with that? I, like, I tend to think, generally speaking, that shame is not a great thing, that, that no one should, like I don't think shame's a helpful thing. I think guilt sometimes is, if someone knows that they're actually guilty of doing something and they might make amends, but shame is such a corrosive feeling okay. most of the time. It, it really, I don't think as, as a general rule in life, it's something that I want more people to feel. However, <laughs> there, there are certain people in public life, as you say, who are so shameless to the extent that I think it, they will never understand what it is that they have done in terms of damage caused. And that 
feeling that I'm sure everyone has felt on some smaller level when you do feel really ashamed of something, that that, that could be a force for good in a very few people, I think. And it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to uh, you know, who gets to decide what's the things worth feeling that shame over. But, but I do think that one of the things with the characters in this book is that they feel shame for things that... It's a shame that is really imposed from the outside. So, again, it's not guilt for something that they've done, hurting someone or doing something wrong in that sense. It, it is a shame, and it's in, in the cases in this book, it's associated with an outside perception, putting a label on them that then defines them. Mm. Because th and they then... So, so, Nick becomes a hoarder. That's it. That's all she is now. Everything that she feels about herself and her life is just once she has this diagnosis or people talking about her this way, that's all gone. That's what you are. That's who you are. Full stop. That's how we talk about you now. Lena becomes this slut or whatever other words even worse than that are used about her. That becomes her existence now. She's the girl in that video. Nothing else about her is real um, or worth considering. And... Um, for Will, the third character who has had a short stint in prison, he is an ex-con. That's it. There's nothing else about him now. And I think some of the things with people who do have a lot of power and a lot of social capital and a lot of prestige, you know, we talk about people being Teflon, like mm. things just slide off them. I wonder if that's part of it. It's that power to impose a label on someone and they don't really have the power to resist that because there's they don't have the wealth or the social capital or whatever built up to go, that's just a thing that happened. It's just a thing I did. You know, and you hear that all the time with more powerful people. Oh, yes, I, I, mistakes were made. Or, yes, that was a bad day or I drank too much. Or it's, you know, the, the most shameful things are things that I just did a thing one time. Mm. It's not who I am. Whereas with these characters, it, it is sort of immediately imposed on them, this is who you are and this is how we talk to you and deal with you now. You know, I mean, the other day, Scott Morrison was able to say about the QAnon questions, I don't comment on gossip. And he was able to shut that down mm. completely. Mm. It's extraordinary, really, mm -hmm. to be able to do that. I mean, it's a gift. There's no doubt about it. It's a gift. To who? Well, exactly. You know, let's not go there. Um, mm. I've already played my hand too, no, no. <laughs> too openly. <laughs> but given that, you know, we're talking about these things, um, let's just go back to class for a moment because I think there are a, a few writers at the moment who, who are tackling class head on and you're one of them. And then when I was thinking about who else is doing it, I think Melissa Lukashenko mm. has been doing that for some time. And I think also that Catherine Heyman in her mm. new memoir, Fury, uh, is also doing it head on. But up until now, it has been a subject that we found quite difficult to write about and to talk about. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, I think literary culture tends to be very middle class and upper middle class. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But, but it, it does. I mean, that's a generalisation. There's always been exceptions. But I, I, think, I think that is, is just a, a true thing that a lot of the people who end up in publishing and in literary culture do have a kind of shared class background. And you can, I can tell when someone from that background tries to write working class or even lower middle class characters because <laughs> they're all a bit, you know, oh, street mate, or something in a way that doesn't feel at all authentic or, or they're really gritty and depressing stuff. And I think that's one of the things for me. I, when I first, you know, this is my sixth novel, as you've said, when I started out, because I came really from outside and didn't, didn't know all this, I didn't know what I was doing, I hadn't been through a writing course, I just did it at, at night. Um, I was just writing about, I just thought I was just writing about normal people, <laughs> whatever that is, which means people like me. Mm. And it wasn't until I started doing things like this, like this is going back 10, 12, 13 years now, and started getting put it on panels that were things like, you know, outsiders, freaks and misfits, <laughs> all this, <laughs> I was like, Right. Whoops! <laughs> Whoops! I didn't know. Um, so obviously now I'm much more aware of that and, and have read much more uh, broadly, I guess, across Australian literature too and, and understand, um, you know, I, I understand this on a, on a different level now and write about it a lot more consciously. But, but one of the things that gets me is that there are particular things that... Okay, so there's, there's this quote that I won't give exactly because I'll mangle it, but I think about all the time from the American short story writer Grace Paley, who is an, in, an incredible writer and an activist. 
And she said something about she's not interested in stories um, that don't have within them blood and money. Mm. And she means blood as in family. Mm. And she means money as in how are you getting it? How do you live? So even when the stories aren't about those things, the characters always have when's the welfare check coming or when's my paycheck coming? I can't afford childcare. What's happening to the kids while I'm doing this other stuff? that they have to deal with family and money, and it's just part of their existence. And when you take those things out, it either means you have an enormous amount of privilege mm -hmm. that people can just not think about that stuff, and that's a different kind of story. Or, to me, I feel like I'm reading something that is a bit like the characters are on a green screen, and that context and that background hasn't been filled in. Because how, how are you doing this? How are you solving this mystery driving around for six days without going to work or getting any money? Like, how are you even affording to put petrol in the car? Um, or where are the kids? <laughs> like, it's just, like it's just, or, or are there kids? And all this kind of stuff. I just think for this full, for, for contemporary fiction and realist fiction to have this full sense of life, people, people have families. People either have money or they don't, and that affects what else they're able to do. And it doesn't need to be about that, but it needs to be in there. And when you write about that, I found people say you're writing about class. And all that says to me is that there's an assumed normal which is we don't mention any of that stuff. Mm. But if, if we don't mention any of that stuff, then again, that means, I don't, I don't know, I think if you cannot think about that stuff, that means you're in a particular position in life. And there's plenty of wonderful, wonderful stories and books I've read and loved that that is true of, but it can't be all of it. There's a lot of life that is lived in between picking up kids from childcare or scraping together enough money to decide whether you can afford to get the bus or you have to walk. We've got about 10 minutes left, so if you're busting to ask Emily a question, now is the time. So if you would like to ask a question, there's a roving mic, and you just have to put up your hand, and the mic will come to you. Uh, there's a question from Kate, and then we'll come to you in the middle. Yeah. Hi, Michelle from StoryFest. Just jumping in here quickly to let you know the audio quality for the audience questions was so low we had to take them out. We did, however, leave Emily's answers in because they were just so interesting. Hopefully you'll be able to get the gist of what the question was from Emily's answers. Okay, on with the show. Uh -huh. oh, thank you, Kate. Um, so I am lucky enough to know a lot of people in that age group. Many of them are my nieces and nephews and they are wonderful sources. Um, not in the specifics of her situation, which is horrific, um, and, and happily has not been any of their exact situations, but certainly in the language around that, in the way it would be dealt with in their circles, I had, I had some good research assistants on that to talk to me about that. Um, but also a lot of it was just from paying attention to the culture. I mean, I think one of the real privileges of being a professional writer and, and having the, the luxury when I had this fellowship to spend almost full time working on this book is that you, you do get to spend a lot of time just thinking about stuff that, that maybe most people, again, because of work and childcare and all that other life stuff, might read a quick thing in the paper and go, oh God, that's terrible, and not just not have the space and time to really think about that and dig into it. And it is a privilege that this is my job, that I could spend a really long time. And around the time when I was writing the first draft, there was a um, similar scandal to one that Lena gets pulled into um, in terms of a absolutely revolting website that went up that there were a lot of um, boys and men around Sydney and I think wider New South Wales who were swapping photos and videos of girls and actually labelling them with their school or their university and, and even trading off those things like if you get me a girl from here I'll get you this. And this was a real thing that happened and was a real story. And it was something that I, you know, it was depressing, or more than depressing, it was harrowing, um, looking into all that happening and, and really trying to understand the dynamics behind that. And then, and then again, talking to actual young people who are in that age group about, you know, one of the things that struck me and I think comes across in Lena's story is how ordinary it is. Not when it happens to you, it, it, it is devastating, but just that I wouldn't have at that age and I wasn't sheltered by any means, but we didn't have the internet and this kind of thing. And I would not have had a range of different responses to that situation. Like I can talk to some 18 year olds now and they're like, well, if this and this, and this person did this, and this person did this, and, and to have actually a, 
a body of knowledge around this kind of behaviour was one of the things that was, was the saddest and most upsetting to me. And one of the biggest responses is, is well, what do you expect that's going to happen? Mm. I, had, I had this uh, central character of Nick and I knew what was going to happen in terms of her, her life would be interrupted in this particular way and I knew it would be her niece. who was So I had that. Um, I didn't have the end for a really long time and not having the ending means that the middle is also quite up in the air because you need to, you, you know, need to figure out where it's going. So that changed quite a bit and quite a few times and that was something that was definitely driven by the research I was doing and talking to people. I mean, without giving anything away, anything spoilery, I can tell you what my central dilemma was, which is that most people with hoarding disorder, like there's not really a cure. There are certain treatment things, but it, it's actually unrealistic to think there's going to be some magical happy ending. But also, I wanted it to be quite a happy ending. I didn't want it to be a depressing <laughs> book. So, so my dilemma throughout was how do I really make this authentic to this experience and not too easy and tied up, but also not be depressing and grim. And so that was something that I struggled with for, for a long time. I have to say that the ending made me cry. The ending is so wonderful and <laughs> unexpected and I just think you've really pulled off magic there. It Thank just, you. I didn't see it coming and it just kind of, you know, it sort of guts you, but it guts you in a great way where you're happy to be crying. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so, so Josh, who's the, the bloke who releases this video of Lena, um, and so, so the first thing that was important for me in writing his character and his relationship with Lena at the start was that they, they do have really good chemistry. Mm. Like, they really spark off each other. It was important to me that Lena's shame that she feels later on is to do with what's been done to her with the release of this video. It's not to do with the sex that she had. She has great sex with this guy. And, and I hope that comes across. It was important to me to write quite an explicit scene, just as a warning, <laughs> which I had to tell my dad, who's blind and was listening to the audio, I just said, skip chapter two, and <laughs> you'll figure out what happened and it'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> um, but I needed that to be so that, that it was really clear that there's nothing about the actual uh, interaction that, that was non-consenting or shameful or upsetting to Lena. She had a good time and she came out of it feeling really good about herself. And what this boy, this young man does is, like I think he does like her in his way and is into her in his way, mm. but when it comes down to it, he is a product of his own privilege and his own background and this college culture, which is something else that I looked into really uh, deeply and it didn't end up all of it in the book. It's a whole other book, I think, but this idea that when it came down to it, the people he wants to impress and he cares about are the other men and boys around him. It's this homosocial culture. <laughs> Again, a word no one in the book would use, but that's really for him, as much as he does like her, although he's quite condescending to her and rude to her and does this awful thing, is it, it is much more important to him to, to do this thing that's part of this bro culture. And she can be, a, you know, collateral damage to that. Mm -hmm. And to him, it, it's not even about her. Like, it's a bit, like, he's a bit like, what are you, this isn't even about you. It's something, this is what everyone's doing. It's just, you know, he just, he's just in this position where what, what to him is so important is that he is not an outsider. It's tribal. It's tribal. It's tribal. Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the few things that, um, you know, is good news on the radar, actually, is that given that you address consent in this book, in, in this particular storyline, I'd have to say that since the book's come out, I think that we have made some real progress on consent, thanks to campaigners like Chantel, mm. uh, Chanel Contos being able to sort of galvanize her generation and also start a dialogue with the police and you know, people in authority. So I think consent, mm. we, we're getting there, don't you think? Oh yeah, look, the, the conversation at the moment is really encouraging and the way it is being driven by these young women especially, you know, I, I feel so hopeful and that even when I say that I kind of want to slap myself in the face because, <laughs> uh, you know, metaphorically, because I, I do kind of hate that we as well, me and this generation older, this whole thing of like 
putting all our hope on the young people. Mm -hmm. Like, it's great, but they shouldn't have to be doing no. all this work. Like, it really shouldn't be up to them. It's, it is what the aunties and the mums and the grandmas and all hand, that. On the other hand, at the Women's March, there were some women in their 20s who saw me with my placard and my dressed in black mm -hmm. and who came up to me and they said, we're sorry you still have to march. Oh, but see, <laughs> they're so good. so sweet. The young people are so good. <laughs> I love them. I love them. So anyway, we're getting somewhere, slowly, but we're getting somewhere. Um, we have come to the end of this wonderful hour with Emily, who will now be signing copies of Love Objects um, in the uh, bookshop area. Um, so please join me in thanking Emily. Thank you. Thanks, Kara. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Come and find us on our website at storyfest.org.au or follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at Storyfest Inc. And that's Inc. with a C. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting for her recording and production expertise on this podcast. <laughs>